0: Hello. We all know from childhood how intoxicating and thrilling secrets can be. Hearing one made us feel important and special. Threatening to spill the beans was a perfect way to get what we wanted. From an early age we learn that controlling information means power. Governments know this too. It's long been suggested that secrecy is entrenched in the way the Irish state operates. Other people argue that the state must be allowed to operate in secret when needed and that civil servants and politicians should be the best judge of this. So what are the limits of state secrecy that we should all accept? And if we want to move towards greater transparency, just how can we do it?
1: Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you
2: promise not to
0: with me to unlock all these answers are Maeve O'Rourke from NUY Galway here with me in Dublin and from our Cork studio, Maeve McDonough from UCC. You're both very welcome. Um, Maeve McDonough, before we start, it is easy to understand why you decided to study law and justice because I read that you are a middle child of a family of 10, which is strikes me as a big motivator
1: to understand uh, the legal side of things. Certainly, uh, there was plenty of argument and debate growing up. And I suppose I've always had an interest in in current affairs, politics and indeed an interest in information and information technology. I'm interested in, I suppose, the imbalances in power that arise from informational disparities. Information law, I think, is fascinating because it does operate at the intersection of law, politics, human rights and information technology, so all of those areas combined. And I read that your mum was hugely inspirational to you because she took up study late in life, is that correct? She did. She didn't have the opportunity to go to college as a youngster and through sheer determination, having sent her 10th child off to primary school, she um, brought herself into university in NUI Galway, as it happens, where I joined her a year later and various family members were already studying there, my older siblings. So she was a a great um, inspiration.
0: Maverick, Work, you, you grew up in Dublin and I understand that you actually wanted
2: to study music, not law. My plan was to be a music therapist until the very last minute. So, yeah, I probably have a different perspective to a lot of people who study law. And I clearly have ended up on the very human side and probably um, a more creative end of it, doing human rights. And, and you went, to, is this correct, you went to Minnesota in your third year in
0: university? And you realised in America that it wasn't just about studying law, but it was about making law.
2: I had a great opportunity when I was in America and I went there when I was only 20. I was able to work as a human rights clerk, a paid human rights clerk for the Human Rights Centre. I worked on a Guantanamo defence project and I did actual legal work as a third year law student. Um, I was writing memos for lawyers who were arguing that people shouldn't be subjected to waterboarding in Guantanamo Bay. Maeve McDonough, it
0: strikes me from listening to both of you, you both spent a lot of time abroad. And I remember reading Dermot Ferreter's book, Transformation of Ireland, and in it he said, it often took outsiders to unfold the truth. And I wonder, is there anything in that, in that your time spent abroad, in your case, in Australia, gives you a perspective on what's going on in Ireland when it comes to things
1: like secrecy in the law? I think so, yeah. My time in Australia has been hugely influential on, on my career. I arrived in Australia in the mid-80s. New government had come in following many, many years of conservative government. They were introducing huge changes in terms of equality legislation and so on, but also in the administrative sphere with freedom of information laws, and all of that was really fascinating to witness and was something I drew on enormously on my return to Ireland in the early 1990s.
0: When we consider secrecy, do you think, Maeve McDonagh, it is fair to say that the Irish state has been underpinned by secrecy?
1: I think that is correct, yes. I mean, we inherited our focus on state secrecy very much from the British, but uh, we also enthusiastically embraced it on becoming a, an independent state. Historically, I suppose, you can link the, the focus on secrecy with with censorship in Ireland also. Probably one of the biggest influences here was the threats uh, posed to the very existence of the state And talk to me about the Official Secrets Act of 1963,
0: because it made it a criminal offence for civil servants to leak information. To what extent did that bring in a, a very heavy culture of secrecy in Ireland?
1: The original legislation was the British Official Secrets Act of 1912. Here in Ireland, we strengthened that further in 1963 and made it even more uh, hostile to disclosure of information by public servants. And it's very interesting that in 1989, the British actually reformed their Official Secrets Act. We're still operating off a really broadly based Official Secrets Act. And in fact, reform of the Official Secrets Act was included in the programme for government from 2011 to 2016. Despite uh, questions being asked in the oroctus from time to time over the last uh, five years or so, still nothing has been done in terms of introducing that reform.
0: Maverick, I mean, it's fair to say governments have to have some level of secrecy, don't they? I mean, you know, if you think about even in the legal profession, family courts.
2: That's absolutely true. Um, my area of interest, uh, particularly for this discussion, is um, the treatment of people who are incarcerated in the range of church-run institutions. And for me, it is really important to look at what do we see as normal and then to be able to compare it to how the information relating to so-called historical abuses has been treated. So yes, there has to be some secrecy in courts and you mentioned family law and absolutely that's important. But generally, of course, justice should be done in public and should be seen to be done in public. However, when it comes to investigations into so-called historical abuses these days, they tend to proceed entirely in secret. So actually, sometimes it's very helpful to go back to our first principles and say, but hold on a second, we do have some areas where we think justice has to be done in public. Then, of course, we have a National Archives Act. So when it comes to information now, the rule is after 20 years, um, certain state information is just assumed to be public now and it has to go to the National Archives. Again, I like to compare that with what we're doing with the information relating to historical abuse and in no way is that being treated in the same way, even if it is state files. Why do you think that historically
0: we've been so secretive?
2: I feel that the church-state collaboration in, I suppose, the running of Irish society had a great deal to do with a lot of the censorship that happened back in the 1930s. The Carrigan Report, for example, is a prime instance of massive censorship of data, part of a whole decade of investigations into um, things to do with sexuality in Ireland. The um, Department of Justice at the time, in a memo, said to the government, the obvious conclusion to be drawn is that the ordinary feelings of decency and the influence of religion have failed in this country. It's clearly undesirable that such a view of conditions in the Serestat should be given wide circulation. And It was looking into questions of child prostitution, ostensibly, how sex abuse was prosecuted in the courts, questions of access to contraception. But I do think that the real reason that it was censored probably is because it did actually demonstrate alarming levels of sexual crime and that was not something that the government nor the church wanted to put out there. The hugely damaging human impact of course of this censorship came to be the actual hiding away of the individuals who were abused. The efforts to convey a completely different reality were not just on paper, We're not just hiding files, they were actually taking people out of Irish society and hiding them away.
0: Maeve uh, McDonagh, I mean, when you think about the Carrigan report that Maeve was just speaking about there, I mean, is a lot of the secrecy historically in Ireland to continue the sort of myth of an upright Christian society where nobody sinned and, and anything that emerged showing the opposite was then buried?
1: I think a lot of the focus on secrecy comes from that and comes from, I suppose, the unusual relationship between church and state. A lot of that sort of interface still influences the shape of legislation such as Freedom of Information today so that uh, schools are not directly covered by Irish Freedom of Information Act whereas in most other jurisdictions around the world including our nearest neighbours in the UK they are covered and that appears at least to be in part due to that the strange nature if you like of of the Irish educational system where you have that mix of, of church and state and not the normal sort of division that you would have in other jurisdictions. The default position Today is largely in favour of disclosure, but the state has to make sure that exceptions are provided for. And I think when we look at our Irish legislation, we will see that whilst it's a progressive piece of legislation, it does contain a significant number of exceptions and exemptions that render it anti-disclosure in some respects, including in some of the areas we've just mentioned?
2: When it came to the Residential Institutions Redress Board, for example, there was an actual criminal provision inserted into the Underpinning Act saying that It is a criminal offence to publish any evidence that would identify any individual, including the person themselves, gaining compensation. I know that survivors have taken that very seriously. I don't think we see the level of memoir or people speaking out. It is not easy to litigate. And I think this is why the government thinks that, you know what, we'll just sit tight. People are older if we can just ride this out, we can avoid the massive scandal, as they would see it, of all of this information coming out. When actually, I think um, it could actually be extremely cathartic, and of course, it's the very basis of the dignity and respect that people should be afforded now. Just to have the information come out, to be able to have the truth be told, for it to go into the national curriculum, Fred for the education of children. So I'm not sure I would say that it takes more effort to keep these secrets. Things are stacked against the people often who've been abused and who need and want access to the information. And what do you make of the
0: argument that the government is, is trying not to open what they would see as a kind of worms because it will just be too costly to the state?
2: I think that's quite spurious actually because of course when it comes to claims against the state in court. It's quite well insulated at present, anyway. The law in relation to the formation of the religious orders is very complicated and it's not really possible, very easy to sue them. I'm not sure that it stands up that. So many people would be taking cases and it's quite an insult to people who are looking for the information. What they want, first and foremost, is their own information. That information might be personal files, but it's actually also the transcript of evidence that they have given to previous inquiries or, for example, to the ongoing Mother and Baby Homes Commission inquiry, not available. Um, so people want their own information, their own family information. They want their own transcripts to be able to say, this is what I said. And ideally, many people would like to put that in the National Archive. But they also want... The general workings of the institutions and of these systems to be available for people to research, for people to write about. And I don't think many people would realise this and I don't understand um, the absolute reluctance. But the entire archive of the Maclees Committee, for example, I would have thought that they should come under the National Archives Act and go straight there. Do you think all of this is contrary to human rights? I absolutely do think that it's contrary to many different human rights. So, for example, if you are someone who experienced abuse in a mother and baby home or in a Magdalene laundry, you do actually have a right to what's called an effective investigation. And effective investigation actually involves um, being public to the extent possible, being involved in commenting on the evidence that is being considered. And none of these rights have been guaranteed. And then I suppose we come to a question of the right to truth. It's a societal right to know when there have been systematic human rights violations, actually that right also belongs to society because of how important it is to ensure that they don't happen again.
0: Maeve McDonagh, I wonder, is it a case that transparency
1: means better governance? Those who favour FOI very much argue that transparency is of great benefit to the deliberative process in terms of ensuring that uh, citizens know exactly why Policies have evolved in a particular way and that we all know the reason why decisions have been made that affect us or that operate more generally. Other people would argue that too much transparency can be injurious to the formation of policy because it can allow interest groups and lobbyists and so on to become aware of... Plans in a particular area, and that they might use that information to attempt to influence the development of policy. But certainly the former notion that transparency enhances democracy is the one that has held sway most in recent times and just briefly maybe work here i mean you
0: would argue that unless we can understand the truth of what has happened previously we can't even begin to
2: address how in the future we will treat people who need to uh, be housed in institutions I do think that direct provision is an example of us not learning from the past and that if we had better truth-telling, we'd be preventing what's happening right now. The way that direct provision operates is highly problematic because it is the state outsourcing a state function and it fully funding it to private bodies operating for profit who do not come within the ordinary accountability um, laws of the state. We're
0: going to talk now about freedom of information, which came into Ireland in 1997. Uh, We've got a a short clip here from Maria O'Brien, who's a lecturer in media law in DCU. And she explains here how FOI has been used particularly well by journalists.
3: The Freedom of Information Act is a powerful tool in the hands of both journalists and citizens. In theory, at least, it works to provide for transparency, transparency. Under the Act, you can't do what's called a phishing exercise, so you have to ask for specific named records. However, it's a problem sometimes that the FOI bodies, the public bodies, don't necessarily store the data or the records in a way that is easily accessible. It is frustrating because it can be difficult to interpret the Act. Um, One of the most recent cases is the recently decided UCC case, where the presumption in favour of disclosure, which had been a cornerstone of the FOI regime, was overturned by the High Court. Now, the High Court found that the Information Commissioner was incorrect to direct UCC to release records to RTE about a loan that had been provided to UCC.
0: Maria O'Brien there, a lecturer in Media Law in DCU. Um, Maeve McDonagh, we have in you the Irish expert on FOI, not least because...
1: When FOI came, I gather you were teaching in Australia at the time. It was part of a, a general movement across the common law world, in particular the US, Canada, Australia New Zealand, who all legislated for freedom of information between the late 60s and the early 1980s. So when I came back to Ireland, um, I became aware of an interest in, in the introduction of FOI in Ireland. I was lucky enough to be involved providing some advice at the time. There were some people who were very influential, most notably Etna Fitzgerald as the junior minister at the time. In the she, Labour Party. Yeah. Of the Labour Party, she very much adopted FOI and she had some very effective public servants. And between them they researched FOI and they brought together a very good piece of legislation. And had to do a big job in terms of selling that, both within the cabinet and also once it was introduced to public servants more generally. So there would certainly have been quite a lot of resistance. But uh, through the work of these people and the allocation of resources, towards the implementation of the law. It became, you know, quite um, successful in terms of assuaging the concerns of some of the other areas of the public service and making people realise that, you know, the sky wasn't going to fall if you were to introduce this legislation. Because, of course, we have to bear in mind that whilst it does provide a right of access to information held by government departments, it is far from unlimited. And the aim is to provide an appropriate balance between access and then protecting important interests. And do you think that balance has been struck? We could do better, I suppose. Some of the shortcomings of the Irish legislation are in areas like the scope of bodies that are covered by the legislation. So there are some important exclusions, including commissions, investigations, and so on. Most of their records are excluded from FOI, apart from those relating to administrative matters that, you know, relating to the bodies themselves. There is also a complexity in the legislation which makes it quite difficult for people. And there are a number of bodies that are covered, but only in respect of certain information. For example, the Gardaí are only covered in respect of administrative records. Um, I mean, what do you think it says about the
0: Irish state and the government? It seems like there's an intrinsic nervousness by the state
1: Very much so and I suppose we're not alone in that internationally so there has been a pattern of countries introducing FOI laws and then quite often second thoughts leading to the legislation being limited and that's exactly what happened here in 2003 and that had quite a significant effect on the level of usage of FOI, it dropped quite dramatically in 2003. And but just
0: your you're mentioning of Labour Party's Ethna Fitzgerald back in ninety seven, I wondered, you know, is secrecy something that the left, the centre-left or the right parties are more committed to than the other? I
1: suppose internationally, um, this type of legislation has tended to be introduced more by maybe centre-left Governments, but on the other hand, there can be a backlash against it. Tony Blair, for example, uh, famously referred to himself in his memoirs as a nincompoop for having introduced FOI law when it started to impact on the UK's involvement in in the um, Iraq war. The Iraq war. So, so, sort of good in theory, terrifying in practice.
0: Yes. Yeah. Maybe Rourke, do you use FOI much in your work?
2: Well, there is an issue, I suppose, because um, the FOI Acts apply only to information created after the enactment of that legislation, unless the older information is necessary to interpret the newer information. However, I have tried to use it to gain access Just to the index of documents contained in the McAleese archive. So I did apply for the index through FOI and again, the response came back, sorry, we're holding this entire archive, presumably including its index, for safekeeping, not for the purpose of the FOI Act. So they actually expect people who've experienced abuse in Magdalene laundries to ignore the fact that there's been a two-year investigation by all the relevant departments spending lots of time gathering all their archives and actually going and presumably doing the exact same thing again themselves if they ever want to write or indeed if an academic ever wants to write to go and replicate exactly what the government already did.
0: And, And you have spoken a bit about the idea that secrecy stops individuals and society in general from piecing together the truth.
2: And I wonder, you know, is it from a psychological point of view, is there much research on that? There are some psychologists that I've come across, expert psychologists, including one who sits on the UN Committee Against Torture, um, who have focused on the impact of prolonged impunity for torture in particular. The evidence is that people can continue to actually experience the very effects of that torture, even though it may have happened decades ago, until or unless someone says yes. This happened, we acknowledge it. It can actually have an extremely damaging psychological effect. I do hope that we are going to move past this continuing denial. Every time each UN committee brings this up and says to the government, what are you going to do about it? They say... There is no credible evidence that systematic ill-treatment of criminal nature occurred in the Magdalen laundries. We have no evidence that women were systematically detained against their will for long periods of time. Now, that is revisionism, and that is extremely problematic. So there is a real need to ensure that the history of our country is available and that we are listening to people when they tell us who we actually are and what we have done and essentially what is in our national DNA.
0: And finally, you know, when ex Taoiseach Enda Kenny read his 18 minute apology on behalf of the Irish state to the treatment uh, experienced by women in the Magdalene Laundries, he said, at last, we are giving up our secrets. And that was in 2013. In
2: words. words, And what we need to see is actions. Maeve McDonough, finally,
0: do you think it is the case that government and state secrecy and individual privacy move in opposite directions? You know, I was thinking of Vicky Phelan. Um, The more secretive the state becomes, the more that citizens themselves are forced into the public to talk about their own stories and what happened to them
1: well, the interactions between privacy and access to information are many and quite complex. You know, our legislation, as well as providing access to information generally, also gives you a right of access to information relating to yourself. The fact that the legislation doesn't extend back, before 1998 does not actually apply if the information relates to you as an individual so one should be able to use FOI to get older records relating to oneself uh, you so- have warned haven't you that the uh, you know GDPR data collection
0: and data protection laws may usurp FOI
1: Yes, yeah, so that's the other, so that's one aspect of, of the interface in that, you know, you, you can use FOI to get information that's about yourself and, and that's very important. Requests for access to information can touch on the information that relates to third parties, relates to other people. Those requests can be turned down on the basis that acceding to them could negatively affect the privacy of another person's information. So striking that balance in the future is going to be the big battle? In Europe there's a very uh, strong commitment to protection of privacy of personal information and while that's very important it shouldn't be allowed to override rights of access to information that can shed light on for example corruption within government in areas like expenses and and you know payments to particular individuals so if those individuals are able to claim Protection of privacy and data protection law, that can end up defeating access rights. So that's an area we just need to be careful about. There is
0: more on secrecy and the Irish state on rte.ie/slash brainstorm. It is an utterly fascinating area. But for now, Maeve McDonough in UCC and Maeve Work from NY Galway, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.